Welcome back, Heming Brainiacs, for the podcast, part 11, chapter 2, part 1 of 2. Long arse chapter. So I split it up into two. Who knows, I might even split it up into three. I'm very, very tired, and I've still got about 20 pages of it to read. Looks like we're getting a school day in the life of Hanno. Very descriptive chapter so far. So descriptive. Too descriptive may I say like you can't be four chapters from the end of the book and then just dial up the descriptiveness to an 11 when it's been you know at a 6 for the you know pre uh, previous 700 pages it just feels silly there are descriptors with four adjectives in a row which are all really you know they all crisscross each other in the Venn diagram of whatever it's describing like if you say dark and gloomy you can just say gloomy you know cut out the dark and because one implies the other and there was just a lot of unnecessary words I get that he's going for something here, you know, he's putting in this mammoth chapter at the end and really trying to give us a deep dive into Hanno's daily school life, but I just think it's poorly done, honestly. It's too jarring, and at this point of the book it's almost just frustrating to suddenly have all this detail that we kind kind of feels like, well, what does that matter? The book's about to end. Why are you setting this scene so vividly when we're not going to get time to hang out there very very poor structuring i think techrific says treadle machine and early dental drill yeah i think that's right oh my god it sounds terrifying hanno has bad teeth too and so the rot in the family continues poor hanno the lack of any hope in this novel is really taking its toll on me can you imagine how scary it would be to go to that dentist after your own father has just basically died from that dentist botching your teeth. Wouldn't you just go to another dentist at the very least? Hajia Moron says, Whenever man describes Kai, I can't help but think of pig pen from Peanuts. Also reading man's descriptions of Hanno's laborious waking process just after reluctantly rousing myself from bed for work really struck a chord of synergy there with your own life gotta love when that happens um again like that went for two or three pages and this is a lesson I teach with the primary school students that I teach um don't start your book with like an account of someone waking up getting out of bed brushing their hair having breakfast getting ready to go to school you know, putting on their school shoes. Don't, and, because a lot of kids attempted to start their story that way. Where, if a kid is at school, you know, if the chapter starts, or the story starts with a child sitting at their school desk in the morning, all of that leading up to that can be, um, reasonably assumed. You know, if a kid's sitting in class in the morning, you can assume that they woke up that morning. You can assume that they put on their school uniform that morning. You can assume that they ate breakfast. You can assume they did their hair and got ready for school. 
so on and so forth. So there's no need to describe that. That's what I teach to children, and they get that. I don't know why man doesn't get that. Apparently one of the greatest authors of all time. But no, we had to spend three pages of just a kid getting ready for school. When you can just say he's at school, and we know that he had to get there and get ready to get there. So I think he's really trying to paint this vivid, 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 detailed painting of Hanno's daily life. But it's just very, very amateurly done, I I think. Let us continue reading. And um, I'll try not to get frustrated at all the descriptive language. So the shrill sound of the bell, clanging and echoing through the corridor, sh- corridor shook the 25 brains out of their slumberous calm. That is all, said her ballastedit. The register was handed up to him and he signed his name in it as evidence that he had performed his office. Don't need to know that. Don't need to know any of that. I'm already doing it. I'm already getting annoyed. I won't get annoyed. I will just say, doesn't matter. Anything that we read for the rest of this chapter that doesn't matter, I'm just going to say, doesn't matter. And try not to disrupt the story too much. Hanno Buttonbrook closed his Bible and stretched himself, yawning. It was a nervous yawn, and as he dropped his arms and relaxed his limbs, he had to take a long, deep breath to bring his heart back to a steady pulsation, for it weakly refused its office for a second. Latin came next. He cast a beseeching glance at Kai, who still sat there reading and seemed not to have remarked the end of the lesson. Doesn't matter. Then he drew out his Ovid, If someone didn't do something, doesn't matter. Then he drew out his Ovid in stitched covers of marbled paper and opened it at the lines that were to have been learned by heart for for today. No, it was no use now trying to memorise any of it. The regular lines full of pencil marks numbered by fives all the way down the page looked hopelessly unfamiliar. He barely understood the sense of them, let alone trying to say a single one of them by heart. And of those in today's preparation, he had not puzzled out even the first sentence. What does that mean? Dissiderant patula jovis arbor glandes, he asked in a despairing voice. Turning to Adolf Todtenhaupt, who sat beside him working on the register. What? asked Todtenhaupt, continuing to write, doesn't matter. The acorns from the tree of Jupiter. That is the acorn. No, I don't quite know myself. Tell me a bit, Tottenhaupt. When it comes to my turn, will you... Will you? Begged Hanno and pushed the book away. He scowled at the cool and careless... Doesn't matter. One of those two adjectives doesn't matter. Nod, topped and tout, gave by way of reply. Then he slid sidewise off the bench and stood up. Doesn't matter. One of those descriptions. If you slid off the bench and stood up, you just stood up. If you slid off the bench and stood up, you just stood up. Just cut out one of those two things, because you've said the same thing twice. The scene had changed. Her balustar had left the room, and his place was taken by a small, weak, enervated, enervated little man who stood straight and severe on the platform. So he was small and little. 
I just want to point out those two adjectives are in that description. He was small and he was little. What are we doing here? What are we doing here? We've only got so many seconds of life, you know. Why are you making us read the same word twice? His place was taken by a small, weak, enervated little man. You could just say enervated or weak. Any one of those. Just choose one. He had a sparse white beard and a thin red neck that rose out of a narrow, turned-down collar. He held his top hat upside down in front of him, clasped in two small hands, covered with white hair. His real name was Professor Huckup, but he was called Spider by the pupils. He was in charge of classrooms and corridors during the recess. Out with the gas, up with the blinds, up with the windows, he said, and gave his voice as commanding a tone as possible, moving his little arm in the air with an awkward energetic gesture as if he were turning a crank. Everybody downstairs into the fresh air as quick as possible. The gas went out, the blinds flew up, the sallow daylight filled the room, the cold mist rushed in through the wide open windows and the lower second crowded past Professor Huckup to the exit. Cold mist. Mist is always cold. Just want to point out that one of those two words can be removed. Only the head boy might remain upstairs. Hanno and Kai met at the door and went down the stairs together and across the architecturally correct vestibule they were silent. Hanno looked pathetically unwell, cut out pathetically, and Kai was deep in thought. They reached the courtyard and began to stroll up and down across the wet red tiles among school companions of all ages and sizes. A youthful looking man with a blonde pointed beard kept order down here, Dr. Goldener, the dressy one. He kept a pensionat for the sons of the rich landowners from Mecklenburg and Holstein and dressed on account of these aristocratic youths with an elegance not apparent in the old masters. He wore silk cravats, doesn't matter, a dandified coat, doesn't matter, and pale coloured trousers, doesn't matter, fastened down with straps under the sole of his boots, doesn't matter, and used perfume handkerchiefs with coloured borders, doesn't matter. He came of rather simple people, doesn't matter, and all this elegance was not very becoming. His huge feet, for example, looked absurd in the pointed button boots he wore, doesn't matter. He was vain of his plump red hands too and kept rubbing them together, clasping them before him and regarding them with every mark of admiration. He carried his head laid far back on one side and constantly made faces by blinking, screwing up his nose and half opening his mouth as though he were about to say, what's the matter now? But his refinement led him to overlook all sorts of small infractions of the rules. He overlooked this or that pupil who had brought a book with him in the courtyard to prepare a little at the eleventh hour. He overlooked the fact that one of his boarding pupils handed money to the porter, her Schmeliel, her Schlemiel, and asked him to get some pastry. He overlooked a small trial of strength between two third form pupils which resulted in a beating of one by the other and around which a ring of connoisseurs was quickly formed and he overlooked certain sounds behind him which indicated that a pupil who had made himself unpopular by cheating, cowardice or other weakness was being forcibly escorted to the pump. It was a lusty, not too gentle race that of these comrades of Hanno and Kai, among them they walked up and down. The ideals of the victorious united fatherland 
were those of somewhat rude masculinity. Its youth talked in a jargon at once brisk and slovenly. The most despised vices were softness and dandyism. The most admired virtues, those displayed by prowess in drinking and smoking, bodily strength and skill in athletics. Whoever went out with his coat collar turned up incurred a visit to the pump, while he who let himself be seen in the streets with a walking stick must expect a public and ignominious, in ignominious correction administered in the drill hall. Hanno's and Kai's conversation was in striking contrast to that which went on around them among their fellows, this friendship had been recognised in the school for a long time. The masters suffered it grudgingly, suspecting that it meant disaffection and future trouble. The pupils could not understand it, but had settled down to regarding it uh, with a sort of embarrassed dislike, and to think of the two friends as outlaws and eccentrics who must be left to their own devices. They recognised, it is true, the wildness and insubordination of Kai, Count Moln, and respected him accordingly. As for Hanno Buttonbrook, big Heinrichi, who thrashed everybody, could not make up his mind to lay a finger on him by way of chastisement for dandyism or cowardice. He refrained out of an indefinite respect and awe for the softness of Hanno's hair and delicacy of his limbs and his sad, shy, cold glance. I'm scared, Hanno said to Kai. He leaned against the wall of the school, drawing his jacket closer about him, yawning and shivering. I'm so scared, Kai, that it hurts me all over my body. Now just tell me this. Is her mantle sack the sort of person one ought to be afraid of? Tell me yourself. If this beastly over-lesson were only over. If I just had my bad mark in peace and stopped where I am, and everything was in order, I'm not afraid of that. It is the row that goes beforehand that I hate. Kai was still deep in thought. This Roderick Usha is the most remarkable character I've ever conceived. He said suddenly and abruptly, I have read the whole lesson hour, if ever I could write a tale like that. Kai was absorbed in his writing. It was too... <coughs> Excuse me. It was to this he had referred when he said that he had something better to do than this preparation, and Hanno had understood him. Attempts at composition had developed out of his old propensity for inventing tales, and he had lately completed a composition in the form of a fantastic fairy tale, a narrative of symbolic adventure which went forward in the depths of the earth among glowing metals and mysterious fires, and at the same time, in the souls of men, a tale in which the primeval forces of nature and of the soul were interchanged and mingled, transformed and refined, the whole conceived and written in a vein of extravagant and even sentimental symbolism, fervid with passion and longing. Hanno knew the tale well and loved it, but he was not now in a frame of mind to think of Kai's work or, or of Edgar Allan Poe. He yawned again and then sighed, humming to himself a motif he had lately composed on the piano. This was a habit with him. He would often give a long sigh, a deep indrawn breath from the instinct to calm the fluctuating and irregular action of his heart, and he had accustomed himself to set the deep breathing to a musical theme of his own or someone else's invention. 
Look, there comes the Lord God, said Kai. He is walking in his garden. Fine garden, said Hanno. He began to laugh nervously and could not stop putting his handkerchief to his mouth. The while and looking across the courtyard at him whom Kai called the Lord God. This was Director Woolik, the head of the school who had appeared in the courtyard, an extremely tall man with a slouch hat, a short heavy beard, a prominent abdomen, trousers that were far too short and very dirty funnel-shaped cuffs. He strode across the flagstones with a face so angry in its expression that he seemed to be actually suffering, and pointed at the pump with outstretched arm. The water was running. A train of pupils ran before him and stumbled in their zeal to repair the damage. Then they stood about, looking first at the pump and then at the director, their faces, pictures of distress, and the director, meanwhile, had turned to Dr. Goldner, who hurried up with a very red face and spoke to him in a deep, hollow voice, fairly babbling with excitement between his words. This director, Woolik, was a most formidable man. He had succeeded to the headship of the school after the death soon after 1871, of the genial and benevolent old gentleman under whose guidance Hanno's father and uncle had pursued their studies. Dr. Woolik was summoned from a professorship in a Prussian high school and with his advent, an entirely new spirit entered the school. In the old days, the classical course had been thought of as an end in itself, to be pursued at one's ease with a sense of joyous idealism. But now the leading conceptions were authority, duty, power, service, the career, the categorical imperative of our philosopher Kant was inscribed upon the banner which Dr. Woolley in every official speech unfurled to the breeze. The school became a a state within a state in which not only the masters but the pupils regarded themselves as officials whose main concern was the advancement they could make, and who must therefore take care to stand well with the authorities. Soon after the new director was installed in his office, the tearing down of the old school began. And the new office was built up, on the most approved hygienic and aesthetic principles, and everything went swimmingly. But it remained an open question whether the old school, as an institution, with its smaller endowment of modern comfort and its larger share of gay good nature, courage, charm and good feeling, had not been more blessed and blessing than the new. As for Dr. Woolick himself personally, he had all the awful mystery, duplicity, obstinacy and jealousy of the Old Testament God. He was as frightful in his smiles as in his anger. The result of the enormous authority that lay in his hands was that he grew more and more arbitrary and moody. He was even capable of making a joke and then visiting with his wrath anybody who dared to laugh. Not one of his trembling creatures knew how to act before him. They found it safest to to honour him in the dust, and to protect themselves by a frantic abasement from the fate of being whirled up in the cloud of his wrath and crushed forever under the weight of his righteous displeasure. The name Kai had given Dr. Woolik 
was known only to himself and Hannah, and they took the greatest pains not to let any of the others overhear it, for they could not possibly understand. No, there was not one single point on which those two stood on common ground with their schoolfellows, even the methods of revenge, of getting even, which obtained in the school were foreign to Hanno and Kai, and they utterly disdained the current nicknames, which did not in the least appeal to their more subtle sense of humour. It was so poor it showed such a paucity of invention. To call thin Professor Huckop Spider and her bolestered cocky. It was such scant compensation for their compulsory service to the state. No, Kai Count Moln flattered himself that he was not so feeble as that. He invented for his own and Hanno's use a method of alluding to all their masters by their actual names with the simple prefix thus. Her bolestered, her Huckop, the irony of this its chilly remoteness and mockery pleased him very much. He liked to speak of the teaching body and would amuse himself for whole recesses with imagining it as an actual creature, a sort of monster, with a repulsively fantastic form, and they spoke in general of the institution as if it were similar to that which harboured Hanno's uncle Christian. Kai's mood improved at the sight of the Lord God who still pervaded the playground and put everybody in a pallid fright by pointing with fearful rumblings to the wrapping papers from the luncheons which strewed the courtyard. The two lads went off to one of the gates through which the masters in charge of the second period were now entering. Kai began to make bows, bows of exaggerated respect before the red-eyed, pale, shabby-looking seminarists who crossed over to go to their sixth and seventh form pupils in the back court. And when the grey-haired... Sorry. And when the grey-haired mathematics master heard Teet appeared, holding a bundle of books on his back with a shaking hand, bent, yellow, cross-eyed, spitting... As he walked along, Kai said, Good morning, old dead man. He said this in a loud voice and gazed straight up into the air with his bright, sharp gaze. Then the bell clanged loudly and the pupils began to stream through the entrances into the building. Hanno could not stop laughing. He was still laughing so hard on the stairs that his classmates looked at him and Kai with wonder and cold hostility. And even with a slight disgust at such frivolity, there was a sudden hush in the classroom, and everybody stood up as her Professor Mantelsack entered. Mantelsack. Mantelsack. He was the Professor Ordinarius, for whom it was usual to show respect. He pulled the door to after him, bowed, craned his neck to see if all the class were standing up, hung his hat on its nail, and went quickly to the platform, moving his head rapidly up and down as he went. He took his place and stood for a while, looking out the window and running his forefinger with a large seal ring on it around inside his collar. He was a man of medium size, with thin grey hair, a curled Olympian beard and short-sighted prominent sapphire blue eyes gleaming behind his spectacles.
He was dressed in an open frock coat of soft grey material, which he habitually settled at the waist with his short fingered wrinkled hand. His trousers were, like all the other's masters, even the elegant Dr. Goldener's, far too short and showed the legs of a pair of very broad and shiny boots. He turned sharply away from the window and gave vent to a little good-natured sigh, smiling familiarly at several pupils. His mood was obviously good, and a wave of relief ran through the classroom so much. Everything, in fact, depended on whether Dr. Mantlesack was in a good mood. For the whole form was aware that he gave away to the feeling of the moment, whatever that might happen to be, without the slightest restraint. He was most extraordinarily, boundlessly, naively unjust, and his favour was as inconstant as that of Fortune herself. He had always a few favourites, two or three, whom he called by their given names, and these lived in paradise. They might say almost anything they liked, and after the lesson Dr. Mantlesack would talk with them just like a human being but a day would come perhaps after the holidays when for no apparent reason he would dith- they were dethroned cast out rejected and others elevated to their place the mistakes of these favorites would be passed over with neat careful corrections so that their work res- retained a respectable appearance no matter how bad it was whereas he would attack the other copy books with heavy ruthless pen and fairly flood them with red ink, so that their appearance was shocking indeed. And as he never troubled to count the mistakes, but distributed bad marks in proportion to the red ink he had expended, his favourites always emerged with great credit from these exercises. He was not even aware of the rank injustice of this conduct, and if anybody had ever had the temerity to call his attention to it, that person would have been forever deprived of even the chance of becoming a favourite and being called by his first name. There was nobody who was willing to let slip the chance. Now Dr. Mantlesack crossed his legs, still standing, and began to turn over the leaves of his notebook. Hanno Buttonbrook wrung his hands under his desk. B, the letter B, came next. Now he would hear his name, he would get up, and he would know a line, and there would be a row... A loud, frightful catastrophe, no matter how good a mood Dr. Mantlesack might be in, the seconds dragged out, each a martyrdom. Buttonbrook, now he would say, Buttonbrook, Edgar, said Dr. Mantlesack, closing his notebook with his fingers in it. He sat down as if all were in the best order. What? Who? Edgar? That was Luders, the fat Luders boy over there by the window, letter L, which was not next at all. No, was it possible? Dr. Mantlesack's mood was so good that he simply selected one of his favourites without troubling in the least about whose turn it was. Luders stood up. He had a face like a pug dog and dull brown eyes. He had an advantageous seat and could easily have read it off, but he was too lazy. He felt too secure in his paradise and answered simply, I have a headache yesterday and couldn't study. Oh, so you're leaving me in the lurch, Edgar, said Dr. Mantlesack with tender reproach. You cannot say the lines of the golden age? What a shocking pity, my friend. You had a headache. It seems to me you should have told me before the lesson began instead of waiting till I called you up. Didn't you have a headache just lately, Edgar? You should do something for them, for otherwise there is danger of you not passing. Tim, would you like to take his place? Ludus sat down. At this moment he was the object of universal hatred. It was plain that the master's mood had all altered for the worse and that Ludus, perhaps in the very next lesson, would be called by his last name. 
Tim stood up in one of the back seats. He was a blonde, country-looking lad with a slight, with a light brown jacket and short, broad figures. Doesn't matter. He held his mouth open in a funnel shape and hastily found a place, looking straight ahead the while with the most idiotic expression. Then he put down his head and began to read in long, drawn-out, monotonous, hesitating accents like a child with a first lesson book. Aurea prima sata es aetes. It was plain that Dr. Mantelsack was calling up quite at random without reference to the alphabet, and thus it was no longer so imminently likely that Hanno would be called on, though this might happen through unlucky chance. He exchanged a joyful glance with Kai and began to relax somewhat. But now Tim's reading was interrupted. Whether Dr. Mantelsack could not hear him or whether he stood in need of exercise is not to be known, but he left his platform and walked slowly down through the room. He paused near Tim with his book in his hand. Tim, meanwhile, had succeeded in getting his own book out of sight, but was now entirely helpless. His funnel-shaped mouth emitted a gasp. He looked at the ordinarius with honest, troubled blue eyes and could not fetch out another syllable. Well, Tim, said Dr. Mantelsack, can't you get on? Tim clutched his brow, rolled up his eyes, sighed wildly and said with a dazed smile, I get all mixed up, her doctor, when you stand so close to me. Dr. Mantelsack smiled too. He smiled in a very flattered way and said, well, pull yourself together and get on. And he strolled back to his place and Tim pulled himself together. He drew out and opened his book again, all the time apparently wrestling to recover his self-control and staring about the room. Then he dropped his head and was himself again. Very good, said the master when he had finished. It's clear that you have studied to some purpose, but you sacrifice the rhythm too much, Tim. You seem to understand the Elysians, you, you, yet you have not been really reading hexameters at all. I have an impression as if you had learned the whole thing by heart or like prose, but as I say, you have been diligent, you have done your best, and whoever does his best, you may sit down. Tim sat down, proud and beaming, and Dr. Mantelsack gave him a good mark in his book, and the extraordinary thing was that at this moment... Not only the master, but also Tim himself and all his classmates sincerely felt that Tim was a good, industrious pupil who had fully deserved the mark he got. Hanno Bottenbrook even thought the same, though something within him revolted against the thought. He listened with strained attention to the next name. Mun, Munum, Mum, said Dr. Mantelsack, again, or a prima. Mum, well, thank heaven, Hanno was now in probable safety. The lines would hardly be asked for a third time, and in the sight reading, the letter B had just been called up. Mum got up. He was tall and pale, his trembling hands and extraordinarily large round glasses. He had trouble with his eyes and was so short-sighted that he could not possibly read standing up from a book on the desk before him. He had to learn, and he had learned but today he had not expected to be called up. He was, besides, painfully ungifted, and he stuck after the first few words. Dr. Mum helped him. He helped him again in a sharper tone, and for the third time with intense irritation. But when Mum came to a final stop, the ordinarius was mastered by indignation. This is entirely insufficient, Mum. Sit down. You cut a disgraceful figure, let me tell you, sir, a, a cretin. Stupid and lazy both it is really too much. Mum was overwhelmed. He looked 
the child of calamity, and at this moment everybody in the room despised him. A sort of disgust, almost like nausea, mounted against Hanno, again in Hanno Buttonbrook's throat, but at the same time he observed with horrid clarity all that was going forward. Dr. Mantlesack made a mark of sinister meaning after Munn's name, and then looked through his notebook with frowning brows. He went over, over in disgust to the order of the day and looked to see whose turn it really was. There was no doubt that this was the case, and just as Hanno was overpowered by this knowledge, he heard his name as if in a bad dream. Buttonbrook, Dr. Mantle had said. Buttonbrook. The scale was in the air again. Hanno could not believe his senses. There was a buzzing in his ears. He sat still. Alright, I'm going to stop there. I know I said I'm going to do this in two parts, but I'm actually going to do it in three. Because the chapter goes for like 40 pages. And um, it's just too much. Buttonbrook is about to read. And we're going to stop there. Alright, thanks for listening. And I will see you tomorrow.